everyone does whole animal butchery. I mean, fabrication places across the country, everything happens from the whole animal starting point. Sure. Uh, but how it's used and whether or not it's optimized is what we focus on. And that, that's really what makes us special is that we try to use every single piece individually, like what Jeff just talked about and experiencing like that braising that lamb neck and then, and then doing something really amazing with it and being able to have that feeling that I used a piece that I wasn't as familiar with and made a great meal out of it. Welcome to the catch up. Introducing your hosts, Eli Aruth, editor and Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast series. Of the craziest, most bestest, news breaking, food porn peddling, viral website on the dot coms. Crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy. There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right. And welcome to the catch up. Welcome back, fatties. We have our friend, our neighbor, teacher, local legend, go-to meat butcher, Michael Puglisi on the catch-up today. Mm-hmm. He was a chef at Thomas Keller's Bouchon. He's a was a butcher at Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami. And I specifically put in back-to-back like French restaurant names just to mess you up in the intro. Yeah, yeah the back-to-back <laughs> French chef champion. Uh, but now he runs Electric City Butcher, which... Is Orange County's only whole animal butchery shop. Michael's a wealth of knowledge, uh, both in the meat game and the culinary game. He's helped me and Jeff out a ton at Food Beast on articles. He's he's put every single uh, animal he had at his butcher shop one day, one year, and, and made a meat burger patty for me. It was crazy. Uh, it's a whole animal kingdom burger. Uh, Google it. But I still know very very little about butchering animals and meat quality. So this should be a very Interesting podcast, Michael. So welcome to the Food Beast Catch-Up. Thank you, gentlemen. It's uh, exciting to be here, even though it's a really long walk, two blocks down the street to get <laughs> yeah. there. So. You are a literal neighbor. <laughs> so Eli, Michael, if you remember, he was our source of information when Izzy, producer Izzy, wrote that piece about how you're basically getting scammed with the with the tomahawk steak. You're essentially paying for a lot of bone. You're paying for that, a show. That Michael put really well, that most people eventually just give to their dog. Right. And maybe maybe some people used it for a stock, maybe. Or <laughs> but, <shiv>. Yeah, or, <laughs> or shit. He's, uh, he's outlined his favorite butcher cuts that uh, you can't find in a grocery store. I really mm. like that article. But personally... He's actually been a wealth of culinary expertise for me because I tend to walk into the shop. I don't know what I should get. Right. He guides me to what I have, guides me what to get. But on top of that, a lot of times, and one time in particular, I'm looking at this lamb neck, right? I don't know what to do with the lamb neck, but I want, I want, but I want it. Like I see it. There's one in the case. I want to get it. And and he guides me, and I braised a lamb neck with garlic and rosemary and spices. Okay. And then made tacos with that, like, lamb neck tacos. Damn. And that's probably the proudest I've ever been <laughs> making a meal for someone. Like, ever. Damn. So, Michael, thank you for that. Yeah, and I'm right, excited. That's, I'm that's ex- what we do. And I'm excited to learn <laughs> a lot more about butchering. So, whole animal butchery sounds obvious. 
But I was actually surprised because the whole, the only whole animal butcher in Orange County is a county of like three, four million people. Like what, what, what makes a whole animal butcher? Like, why do you guys stand out like that? We stand out. The reason why we stand out about those specific words and, and, and identifying it is because we use every single bit of the animal that comes to us where, and we optimize it. That's the biggest thing is that Mm. everyone does whole animal butchery. I mean, fabrication places across the country, everything happens from the whole animal starting point. Sure. Uh, But how it's used and whether or not it's optimized is what we focus on. And that's really what makes us special is that we try to use every single piece individually, like what Jeff just talked about and experiencing like that braising that lamb neck and then then doing something really amazing with it and being able to have that feeling that I used a piece that I wasn't as familiar with and made a great meal out of it. So if I were to walk into the shop right now, what would I see? Like what's on display versus what's being broken down? I, I, in general, you're yeah. going to see very little as far as display goes mm. because that's p- another part of what we try to focus on is the education mm. of what is available and how you get it and you know how to use it. So our case is very small. We only have a six-foot case, and yeah. that's intentional. Mm. And then the reason behind that is that we want you to get the experience. We want you to ask for something that maybe not in the case. And we do almost everything to order. Like we have very few steaks that are cut, uh, very little meat that is ground. We do all of that stuff to order for two reasons. One, because we want you to have the experience and get the education and, and actually absorb and keep that knowledge because because of the experience. And then two, because you can also uh, you can limit what you're, is exposed because exposure to meat you know will lead to loss, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So controlling that from a whole animal perspective is really important as well when i've walked into a butcher shop growing up um because a lot of times for like special meals i'd go with my mom um we'd go to a place where um it definitely wasn't a six foot case it's probably like a 90 foot case right yeah and with with steaks kind of piled high right and like based on cut so you'd see like bone-in ribeyes certain price point and they're stacked to the top of the case and then Ground beef stacked to the top of the case. How um, can you explain how how beef gets there? And like, because I, I would love even before we dive into like your butcher shop specifically, I think there's a lot I don't know about the more common butcher shop that I think is out there. Like, how does the how does the cow from the farm reach my plate if I'm going to? A butcher shop like that or a grocery store that has cuts of cuts of beef like that? A lot of those places are going to focus on margin, which is really important in our business because it's there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of labor and there's a lot of loss uh, in this business because, you know, what's happening when that animal gets processed, it's it's literally going bad. It's, you know, that's it, it's decaying, right? That's what's happening. Um, so when you talk about what happens from that animal from the time it comes from the farm to the processor, to the store and then finally to you. Yeah. There's there is a lot that does happen with that entire carcass and the whole thing does get used. And you know, make no mistake, you know, we're not trying to throw shade on anybody saying like, "Oh, you're getting you're throwing animals in the garbage." But for us it's about how do you optimize every bit of that animal in a traditional fashion and and get the most nutrient out of that animal. So a lot of times those things where you'll see those animals get processed is they separate them into sections uh, starting with uh, halves, then quarters and eighths, perhaps, and then into uh, primals, then into subprimals, and all of those. It's basically picturing, you know, you you, you have a whole animal, and then it breaks down, you know, the, the hind leg and the forequarter, and in each section, there has a, a, a better usage than 
than your standardized. Like uh, like the front quarter, you get a lot of ground meat out of that, a lot of braising meats out of that, not as many steaks. Uh, you got more steaks out of the midsection, more steaks out of the hind, more roasts, things like that. So it still becomes optimized, but a lot of it also gets put into you know certain categories. You know, like you want to have a high yield, so all the fat and everything that comes off of these animals, you can blend that with the lean meat from the leg. So that way you're using up that whole, the whole animal in that sense. But what happens is you lose the, the prestige of those cuts. And that's what we want to focus on is like, there's beautiful hind leg steaks that you can seam out and, and you get these nice little cuts. Like some of the ones we did in, in the article, it's like, but you have to, you have to separate the animal into these like sub quadrant areas where it's like, it, it's, it's so small to where it's not marketable. It's not, it's not ideal for merchandise. So a lot of those things will fall into what would be the grind category or stew category and what have you, because there's not enough of it to merchandise. So what happens is those things still end up getting used commercially, but they're not as highlighted. Like mm. marketing is always going to push people towards high, high margin, high price point pieces because that's how businesses are able to be successful. And they, you know, put the other things that aren't as prestigious into the low level margins because they just want to move it quickly. So that's where like ribeyes, porterhouses, T-bones, fillets, you know, sirloins and things like that. Those are what has been marketed to us as the more prestigious cuts. Right. So they're immediately going to have more value. So they're immediately going to have those things abundant in the case. They're not going to focus on ground beef. They're not going to focus on, you know, beef shin and things like that, because those things you have to spend a lot of personal time on to cook it and get that value out of where you just get an eight ounce filet, you throw it on the grill, you know, 13 yeah. minutes and you're sitting down and eating this super delicious tender thing that you just bought for probably 25 to $55 a pound, but you put minimal investment into it and you got maximum value out of it. So, so how hard is it for, or how hard has it been or continues to be as a business when, you know, I imagine uh, Super Bowl is coming around and and the average person is like, I'm going to do steaks. I'm going to do steaks for this game or this Labor Day or for Fourth of July. Right. And they're like, I'm going to go to the butcher shop and I'm going to go. I'm going to get bone in ribeyes because when I go to a fancy steak restaurant, that's what I order. And I want to do that. And I'm going to go to this top of the line butcher shop and I want to order eight to ten pounds of bone in ribeye. But you're a whole animal butcher shop, so you may or may not have ribeyes even available. Mm -hmm. So how much education goes into almost every transaction and how hard has it been to like re-educate the person who's coming in for something very specific? That's a great question. And that's that's what we pride ourselves on. Honestly, like that's the experience that we want to give people when they come in. Like if we're not spending 10, 15, 20 minutes with every guest, we're not doing justice to what we've based our, our business on. Like we want to spend time with you. We want to educate you. So if something's not available, we're not going to let you walk out empty handed. We're going to give you an opportunity to try something else. And we're also all very, you know, culinary experience where we can walk you through how to, you know, make that lamb neck that you did. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll be able to give you what you need, the tools you need when you leave the shop to be able to go and have a great experience with what you're leaving with. You may end up with sirloin steaks or maybe it's skirt steak or something. Um, I think one of the biggest things that people don't think about when they're trying to recreate, you know, experience like having all those ribeyes that, that they had at a restaurant, they want to have that experience for their friends is that it's not always just about the cut. It's also about the technique. It's about the quality of the product, you know, and that's something that we stand behind is that that's, that's our base is transparency, quality, and responsibility. And when you put those things all together in every single transaction, 
it doesn't matter if they're walking out with beef shank or ribeye, they're going to have a great product in their hands. How do you decide what to have in your store? So like the idea of there might not be this particular steak in there. How do you how do you decide like, well, this week we're breaking down a pig. Is it based on like someone ordering something beforehand and thus you go after that animal and that's what you have for that week? That's exactly how it, it's it's become. So we originally used to do every single thing to order. Like you, mm-hmm. you wanted lamb chops, like I'm bringing out the entire lamb, fabricating it right there, breaking it down. You know, if you want the French rack chops or whatever, it, it's happening right there in real time in front of you. Mm, wow. As we've grown and the demand has grown, we've had to kind of shift that a little bit to where we now have a scheduled breaking days and things like that to mm. where we can actually facilitate guest services a little bit faster. Um, I mean, you guys have been around since day one. Like you remember, you, you get three people in the shop, four people in the shop, and there's an Pack. echo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. people <laughs> waiting outside. You know, it, it was it was an amazing you know problem to have. I mean, I don't think it was a problem. It was more like how do we reorganize to be able to provide more to the community? And that's I mean that's the whole basis of the shop is providing the community something really special and having the connection to a, a really high valued quality product. And so we thought about okay, how can we schedule this and make this more efficient on our end and a better experience for the guest. And that's where we started doing pre-orders with all of our farmers. So we have scheduled slaughter dates, we have scheduled delivery dates, we have scheduled breaking days internally in the shop. And then that will dictate what is always available after we pull off the things that we actually have a reservation system for. Gotcha. So we actually, you can you make a reservation with for cuts with us, like you make a reservation at a restaurant. What's popping right now in the shop? Like what, what animals are getting ordered? Dude, I'm, short ribs are blowing up right now why I, I don't know i mean we we did like 113 pounds of short rib in like nine days it was insane because we we're like well we got way more short rib than we need what are we going to do and then, honestly just people just started coming in and there's also I, i'm i don't remember the name of it exactly uh during christmas uh there was this huge request of this german cut uh that is a center cut boneless pork loin with skin on with quarter inch scores on it and it's like i mean we had probably 15 or 20 requests for this out of nowhere um, you know, we did a little research to find out what happened locally. And there was uh, a German guy who unfortunately passed away who used to provide that to his church, mm. uh, to a lot of people. And so they were out uh, this product for Christmas and didn't know what to do. So they immediately flocked us because they knew that we do custom butchery. Like everything that we do is done by hand. Everything is done from whole animal and everything is done custom. So it's like, we could provide things that no other butcher shops, supermarkets, online markets could even think about doing. So when that when that demand came in, did you then suddenly have like 15 pigs on your hand? Well, we worked with our farmer okay. and we filled that demand and we satisfied as many people as we could. I mean, that's the challenge with whole animal too, is like, you know, you can't just go and call, you know, your local meat supplier and be like, oh, send me another case of tenderloins. No, I have to call the farmer and go, hey, Seth, you know, hey, Lauren, whoever it is. And it's like, I've got an order for this. Do you even have anything? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like, no, we don't slaughter till Monday and we don't cut until Wednesday or Thursday. So you might be able to have it on Friday. You know, and like, oh, well, I have a guest standing in front of me. You know, so we do try to carry more product internally, working knowing that those, those demands are there. So whether it's ordering more product and we also work a supplemental program directly with the farmers who we do whole animal with because our farmers have other businesses too, where they may sell to colleges or something like that. And they're selling them a bunch of, you know, I don't know, New York strip or something like that. And they may have some end cuts where we're like, we'll take those. So Mm. that way we're supporting and optimizing whole animal usage. So our farmers not just dumping everything into the grinder, not discarding bones and things like that. Like we work with our farmers that way too. We're like, what are you long on? And if Mm. our farmers are long on something, we're like, 
let, let's let's get that let's let's promote that let's showcase that and let's support that whole animal usage so that way they don't have to do anything that's not optimizing the whole animal carcass so you're telling me your business is gambling <laughs> because because you're basically yeah. like when you have a demand of X, legal gambling it, for sure but it's Coffee but like, are also legal like short-term demand, it's it's hard for a whole animal butchery to respond to short-term demand because even if you need more loins, for example, yeah. like the way you source is, well, I still have to have usage for these other parts of the animal. And so even if I want to sell these loins, I also have to be thinking about, well, what am I doing with everything else, else. that I'm ordering? Yeah. And, that, and that to me seems... Right, like that's a very layered transaction of I have all this demand for this custom cut loin, mm -hmm. which I don't know how many 15 orders, how many pigs is that? Uh, each one is about eight pounds, so that's about six pigs or so, uh, four, four, four to six pigs, depending, because some of them will take a sirloin, things sure. like that. So, yeah. you know, everyone's you know demands are a little bit different, but it was about between uh, about four and six pigs. Because then it's about piecing the puzzle together right oh, yeah because you're just oh, like yeah. well i know i've got this part sold i have the rest of it what am, what am i going to do with it i'm curious about how how you balance the demand with what you put in the case with how you purchase animals that has to do with the interaction with every guest that comes in you know like we know hey man we just broke down all these pigs and we're just really long on bellies ribs and feet right like we're going to put that stuff in the case. And when a guest comes in and they're looking for something, you know, we, and we're really fortunate where we're located is Orange County in general. And, you know, being located here in downtown Santa Ana, like it's a drop off point from so many different freeways that it's very easy to, for people to get to us. Like we have tons of guests that come from like Riverside County, even LA County. I mean, even San Bernardino County. I mean, like wow. we've, we, we have people that drive up from San Diego Pat, and all these people are driving past other butcher shops to come to us because they believe in our transparency, they believe in our quality, and they believe in our responsible sourcing and our commitment to that. So the point I'm trying to make is that when they come in looking for a pork chop and there's not pork chop, but there's ribs and there's bellies and maybe some feet or whatever else, they're like, okay, because I know I'm supporting a whole animal concept to really optimize what the animal has to offer. I wanted pork chops, but I just wanted, I know I wanted pork and my first choice was pork chop. And then our team is able to actually help them. And I mean, we give people broth, we give people herbs and garlic and like, if we're like, oh, you came for a steak, but now you're gonna do a braise, hang on, let me take care of you. And we'll give you, you know, like a little herb bundle and things like that. So that way you don't have to go anywhere else because you originally thought you were gonna grill a pork chop, but now you're stewing shanks. You know? <laughs> so it's like, so it's like, how do you help that guest really, you know, appreciate what they were coming for versus what they left with? And that's part of that education. That's part of that transparency and that connectivity that we provide our guests. I mean, we're just, we're a transparent conduit to every one of our farmers. Were that's you always focus. this geeky about meat? Like Dude. what was you, what was your childhood growing up? Like, can you talk about like, I mean, you obviously didn't know this much about meat as yeah. a six year old. No, I, I mean, honestly, I went through a big transitional phase. Um, I was, I used to work in aviation for what? almost about nine wow. years. Yeah, I mean, I was, I did customer service. I did flight school. I did mechanics apprenticeships. Like oh, I was, wow. I mean, I was, I was going to be, you know, working in the airlines cause that was the hot thing to do. My brother-in-law was a mechanic and I was like, this is great. Like, when I was 15, I got a job just washing airplanes and refueling them. Damn. So like, this is so cool. You know, I'd be outside playing, an airplane would fly above, I'd be like, oh, that's a Cessna 152 and that's a Gulfstream challenge. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> like I was, I was loving it. Um, and then there was just a big switch internally for me. And, and uh, it was actually 
uh, sadly it was after 9-11 where mm. I was working with United Airlines. So we had direct, I, I've had direct impact after that. Um, and it was like, okay, I want to figure things out. You know, it was like, what, it, what do I enjoy doing? I enjoyed carpentry and I enjoyed, enjoyed cooking. And uh, my mother was the cook growing up in a household of, of four. So she was always cooking. You know, she, you know, didn't, didn't, you know, have a lot of uh, outside work. She was, you know, stay at home mom and focused on that. So we had great meals. You know, some of them were very budget driven. <laughs> and when dad cooked, it was very, you know, uh, flamboyant and getting like the steaks and things like that. So it was great. Um, but the, uh, the transition for me was like, okay, aviation is not working out. I want to make, I want to do something I really love and really passionate about. It's like, I can always go back to the airlines. No big deal. Um, so I got a job at a supermarket because oh. I just wanted to know how food got to me. I was like, let's start at the very, very beginning. And I just want to know where food's coming from. And I had a, I had a part-time job, uh, with a local contractor. So I was like, you know, just like building stairs and, and, you know, retaining walls with rebar and stuff like that to pay the bills. And it was great, you know, in between the transition from the airport. And then I got a part-time job, like I said, at the supermarket. I'm like, wow, this is how food comes to us. It's out in New York? Yeah, this is in upstate New York. Yeah, which is, I mean, like, there's no hot cuisine <laughs> <laughs> at all. <laughs> I mean, like, to put it in perspective, Schenectady County is like, people drive around with, you know, shotguns and dead deers in their car. You know, it's like, it's, oh, it's very rural, <laughs> which is, I love it. I embrace it. I love my hometown. I mean, I, I named my butcher shop. Uh, you know, uh, mm. after my name, town, my hometown's nickname. So, um, but it, it wasn't going to fill that need that I was looking for. And I got, uh, after the supermarket, I got a job with a local restaurant. What did you do at the supermarket? From stocking shelves, you know, cooking par-baked pastries and breads, uh, making fruit platters in the catering department. Uh, I mean, making probably one of the best mac and cheeses I've ever made. That's like 75% Velveeta and canned nacho cheese. <laughs> Let's, go. Let's go. Dude, it is fucking delicious. <laughs> like that's, that was the, that was the jam. Uh, we used to sell like, like, I think it was like four or five like pans of that at night. Damn. It was, it was so disgustingly amazing. <laughs> it was great. Um, and that kind of like gave me the bug, you yeah. know, I was like, Oh wow. Food. You know, and like seeing people return like from this mac and cheese and like these simple things like I mean, it was like chicken tenders and stuff. And I was like, I'm feeding people, yeah. you know, like and having them come back to you and go like, hey, Mike, oh, the mac and cheese was great yesterday or whatever. And it's like, whoa, you instantly feel that reward yeah. and that satisfaction. And you're like, I'm helping give somebody something. And I got I got infected with that bug hard. And luckily I was working. There was a, a guy there was like part time uh, ex Disney chef who was like super burnt out. And he was just like doing whatever. And, and I started doing some side gigs with him, just trying to get some exposure. Because again, there, there's no mentors in upstate New York. There, there's very few. <laughs> Sorry, there's very few because I did have a really good one uh, eventually. But it's just very, the, the ceiling is very low there. Um, so for me, I was very hungry and I was like, I want to do this. I want to learn more about it. I mean, I'd watch Iron Chef Japan like till four o'clock in the morning. You know I mean? Like Morimoto and like Harioka Sakai. Like those guys are like, those are like my idols, man. I was like, those guys are making those dishes in an hour. Yeah. You know, it was like, it, it blew my mind. And, and to me, it just constantly fed that hunger of wanting to learn and be connected and, and do something that I could feel really good about. That's always been very important, uh, really important to me. And then uh, he opened up a restaurant. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, I'll go with this guy. So I was like a fry cook for like six months. And then somehow he fizzled out and they were like, hey, listen, like, we don't want to close the restaurant and we don't know how to run our kitchen. So would you mind taking over? I was like 24. And I'm like, yeah. dude, I can't run your restaurant. I'm like, I have no experience. You know, I'm like, this is crazy. But they're like, we don't care. I'm like, 
well, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't care. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to learn on the job. I mean, that's how I learned how to, you know, like build, you know, retaining walls. And like, I worked next to people and I loved working with my hands and I, and I loved creating. It was so to me, it was like, all right, this is a natural outlet. Like, I can't let this opportunity go by. Like, I knew it wasn't going to be like the end all be all. But I was like, why not ride this wave for a minute and see what happens? Um, and then so I took the reins and it was an absolute clusterfuck. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> not good. It was not good. Not good at all. And so this is happened? still in upstate New York. This is right? still in upstate New York. Oh yeah. This is 2005, six, I think okay. it was. Um, so I was, you know, 25, 26 years old and I'm like, yeah, I got this. I mean, when you start running a restaurant that young, like there's a lot of bad things that happen. How big is this yeah. restaurant? It was maybe, maybe 60, 70 seats. It was big. an Irish bar restaurant got run it. by a family. Mm. So just put that in perspective. Yeah, that's fun though. Yeah, yeah what, it's a lot of fun. What, it's a what, lot of fun. What went wrong? Uh, for me or for the chef? Yeah, for you. I for mean, you. for me, I mean, just too much exposure to the industry too quickly, you know. And you know, was it I, overwhelming? I I didn't realize it was overwhelming until uh, it was and, too late, right? You know, yeah. and that was something where it was like, whoa, like, and everyone always said, like, dude, you go work in a restaurant, like, it's gonna mess you up. I'm like, no way, no way. I'm strong. You know, I'm tough. And it did. I mean, it took you, it took, it takes advantage of you like physically, mentally, you know, and you just, you don't take care of yourself, you know, which is really, really important. Something I, I, I want to continue to educate people about. Like that's part of my mission in 2020 is I want to talk more about work-life balance, you know, because that's why I opened up the butcher shop. You know, that's one of the reasons why I opened that. Um, but it just, it came down crashing hard really quick. And my wife and I were like, let's just get out of here. You know, like, let's go move to another city. Let's go see what else is out there. Again, the ceiling is very low here. I took an intern job at a French restaurant that, you know, I was just like, all right, I told the guy, I was like, I just want to learn from you for a year and then I'm out of here. So we did that for another year. And that was my first mentor what in, was in upstate. That was at a place called Provence. Okay. Um, phenomenal restaurant, super classic French. I mean, the guy, I mean, he basically had me do all his work, which is what like a chef tornade does. And I'm super grateful for it because I was setting up his station and my station every single night and like learning how to multitask, how to taste things properly, how to just balance like everything. And I was getting like this major exposure. So for me, I was like, this is amazing. Like I can do this for a year. And that's when we're like, but we're moving to Boston and we moved to Boston. Um, and I got a, a wonderful job, uh, with Bart, with the Barbara Lynch, uh, group. Uh, well now it's called, I think Barbara Grupo something. I don't know. She's changed, but she has like 15 restaurants in Boston now. Yeah. James, James, Be James, James Beard, Beard winner. winner. Yeah, yeah, dude. I mean, working for Barbara was phenomenal. I got exposed to a whole nother level of success and education and networking and sourcing and all these things. And it just started to continuously build in inside of me where I was like, I want to continue to do this. I want to make a difference with what I do. Like we used to have a guy from Vermont. He would drive over the border, come pull up in front of the shop in like a no windowed van you know, like, <laughs> and open up the door and, and like there'd be all these produce, fruits and veggies. And he'd be like, what do you guys need for today? And we would buy some of our veggies from a farmer who literally just pulled the shit out of the ground, still dirty and everything, onions and be like, and we would create the menu off of what literally just came into the door. And we worked with our farmers like that too, like our, our ranchers, you know? And it was like, that was my first exposure to like sourcing. 
Y'all, like, y'all weren't doing that at the Irish pub? No. <laughs> <laughs> Potato skin nachos. <laughs> you know, broccoli bites, which is all delicious. <laughs> you know, so uh, it was definitely uh, changing gears. Did, did uh, Boston, was that your start of butchering? Yes. Well, I did a little bit of that at that Provence in Albany, uh, which is where the, the restaurant was in upstate. We did like veal leg, uh, whole salmon. It was very minimal. It was more about trimming and it was more about um, processing and portioning. Um, it wasn't a lot of whole animal stuff, uh, but it was about, okay, we just, you know, filleted this salmon. What are we else going to do with the bones? We make a fish fumet and things like that, skin crackling. Uh, so he was very into using the whole thing too, but there was no programming there for whole animal at all. So it was, it was cuts from, from, you know, purveyors and things like that. Uh, but then in Boston, it was whole animal and we would get whole pigs in. I mean, it was, it was a, a total transition. And I felt like I wasn't getting enough experience working there. It was a butcher shop slash restaurant. It was actually called The Butcher Shop in Boston in, off of Tremont in Southie. And we had huge uh, private chef clientele. So, I mean, they'd come in and, you know, buy whole tenderloins at $60 a pound. And I mean, it was like, it didn't matter. And what that gave me was the fuel to try new things, to expose myself. I was making sausage, which was horrible. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, no one was really teaching me some of those basics because they just, you know, the programming and training wasn't there as at some places it probably is now. Um, so there was a lot of big learning curve, but I had another great mentor there, Greg Reeves, um, and, and, and Colin Lynch, who has, uh, they both have multiple successful restaurants in Boston to this day. And those guys were like, Hey, we're going to show you the right way to do these things. So they became my mentors there. Um, we were there for about 15 months, I think it was. And my wife and I, you know, that's the thing with this business, you get burnt out. Like, I mean, yeah. I was working like 80 hours a week. It was insane, but I was doing it for educational purpose. I was doing it to, for that fulfillment. That's when we took our working vacation to South beach. Mm. And that's when we got a job with, uh, with Fontainebleau, Fontainebleau. <laughs> <laughs> which was unbelievable. There was seven certified French master chefs that worked for that property, uh, for the reopening. It was a $1 billion renovation. We had what? 25, 250 gallon live fish tanks. We had two different butchery oh, departments. What? I mean, it was absolutely insane. Wait, so what was what was your role? How did you get the job, and what was your role? I actually, I had to I had to demonstrate that I could butcher. I had to do a whole chicken demonstration, uh, like four different ways off of one bird. So it was a progressive demonstration, four different ways off of a chicken. Wait, yeah. what does that mean? So the first demonstration was part uh, was taking off uh, the skin fully intact, and then portioning uh, into eights. And then deboning um, them each each piece individually, and then filleting. So it was like it, it was, and you have to you while you're doing this stuff, like you have to be thinking about what not to fuck up <laughs> because they're I mean, watching you like a hawk, like a hawk, dude, standing next to you with their <laughs> arms crossed like this, like, like some, literally some like French inches. ass people, dude, behind you, extremely French. <laughs> and, and the messed up part was like the the meanest one, uh, Mike, Michael Michael Bear, again, a, a phenomenal mentor of mine was such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> the smallest <laughs> runtest one out of out of the group. And the other two guys are like six, seven. And they're and like so it was very intimidating. I mean very intimidating. Uh and somehow I This passed. is the application, right? Oh yeah, they yeah, don't give a shit what's on paper. You know, they nobody in this business, if they care what's on paper first, they're not hiring for experience. Like that's why they, that's why you do stages. That's why you do demonstrations. That's why those things exist because your your you know resume could say whatever you know, but you might have been failing every day. Like show me you can make a bird block. You know, don't just tell me what goes into it. You know, and, and those kind of things. So yeah, it was it, that was my that was my interview. So you was, didn't fuck up. I'm assuming. 
I didn't fuck up as bad as other people. <laughs> like I had, I had to portion a tenderloin without knowing the original weight of anything of the original weight of the tenderloin or a single portion of the first portion. Do you so just feel it? You do. You do. I mean, I can do it now probably flawlessly. Well, close to flawlessly, yeah. <laughs> you know, like pretty close to And it had to be within a half of an ounce, which is a very small margin. Uh, so it was, it was that kind of stuff that, that I had to do. Uh, and I got a job. I didn't get the job I was applying for. I got the, the next step down, which is what they call like, um, junior chef de partie, uh, which is basically someone that two other people are in charge of because you're just not good enough to be unsupervised. Mm. So I graduated from that within like probably like 45 days, which was awesome because the butchery program, we butchered for 10. If, if you look up uh, the, the hotel, I mean, there's, there's 11 restaurants on site. Uh, and when we opened, uh, Gotham Steak was there by Albert uh, by Albert Portali. Scott Conant had Scarpetta there. Um, oh, there was Scarpetta dude spaghetti. Oh, this, dude. oh the, when they opened up at the montage uh, across from Bouchon, dude. Oh, uh, my like God. once a week. Okay, <laughs> so keep good. going. So I mean, th- there was major players there, right? Yeah, because Michael Mina's there. Michael Mina there now. Hakkasan. Yeah, I don't know if they were there. Yeah. I don't know if they're still there. Hakkasan was there, which Hakkasan was huge in two thousand. 2008 yeah. I think it was when they came to the state. It's like so it was a, a lot of a real big deal. So your de- the par- department you were in would butcher for all the for restaurants the and and um, food and beverage, which was like all the banquets and stuff like that. I, I mean, we would portion. I remember when Victoria's Secret did like their big like uh, show that they do over there, like the, the Wings show or something. I can't remember what it is. And, and it's it's like, like the ones where they walk the runway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I remember portioning three thousand pieces of sea bass. Like we shucked. 1300 oysters of five different kinds. So whatever that math comes out to be, right? So, <laughs> you know, five different kinds, 1300 of each. So it's like, yeah. I mean, it was intense. Like we would be 4,000 portions of filet mignon like every week. So what I got there though, was like portioning and repetition and speed practice. Dude, right? It was, it was like, that's where you get that. That's the regimen. Yeah. And, and that to me, I was like, okay, I'm going to stay here for a little bit, you know? And, uh, I stayed there for a little while. Was, it was Miami, like, of course. Dude. What's the hot? <laughs> <laughs> you get any fucked up shit in Miami? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been in Memorial, been in South Beach on Memorial Weekend? No. no. It's like Freak Nick. It's what? Do you know what Freak Nick is? Wait, what's that? Uh, Google it. Like, <laughs> is that like that dance style? It's something that happens in the South. <laughs> it's, Damn. Look it up. Look it up. Then go to South Beach Memorial Weekend. Did it's you intense. get? Did you get burnt out on Miami? Or did you get burnt out on I got what you burnt were doing in Miami. at the restaurant? It was just it was, it was not it was not where my wife and I wanted to live. I mean, we lived on the beach, which was phenomenal. We had a, a housing statement from her job, so I mean, like we were just there partying, having a great time. It was a, it was a, the exact release that we were looking for because you get burnt out in in, in this in this industry. It's, it's well, when hard. you work eighty hours a week, every week, forever, yeah. yeah. And the demands. It's like you know when you have people at the door and they're ready to eat your food and they have a reservation at five thirty, like. You can't tell them, oh, come back tomorrow, you know, because I didn't finish prepping out the lobster bisque. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's probably it, one of the more immediate know? industries you could work in. It's, like yeah. just it, the idea of like brutal the on-demand. It's crucial. It, 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 there's, there's, a, there's a lot of phenomenal things that happen. I love that about restaurants. And um, and, and I miss part of that. I do. Uh, but there it was like all about speed, repetition, consistency, you know, formatting, all that kind of stuff. And I worked under that master, sh- the, the master butcher. And it was like, Dude, this guy's a badass. I mean, he's crazy, literally like crazy, but you kind of embrace some of that because you learn from that because it's not crazy because he's like doesn't care. He's crazy because he cares so much. Yeah. You know, it's like you're putting food in people's body and it's got to be right and you got to care about it because if you don't, something else could happen. And, and that's part of what we, we use that as our philosophy in the butcher shop every day is like 
everything that we do in the butcher shop, we care so much about it to where like we may not put something out. Like people want charcuterie sliced like for a party five days away. We'll say no. Like, please come back. You want to have it fresher. There's reasons for that. You know, we won't just tell them no. We'll say because we don't we don't use no in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> what would be better would be this. Yeah. And, and so those are a lot of those things I've learned over the years. And then um, after after uh, Miami, we were done there. Like I got this bug. I wanted to go work for Thomas Keller. Like I needed to go work for Thomas Keller. Like that was the goal. I was like, I'm not, if I'm not, I didn't go to culinary school and I didn't get that background. Like I need to go work for somebody who is the best, like the top notch. And that's where I'm going to get my education. And I'm going to, I'm going to take every beating that I need to take and I'm going to do what it needs to do. And I'm going to sacrifice every hour. So Fontainebleau was supposed to be opening a property in Las Vegas was the original plan. Uh, somehow bankruptcy or something else happened and I was going to be transferring to Las Vegas and then jump ship to Bouchon in Las Vegas was the grand plan of my wife and I. Yeah. <laughs> and when bankruptcy happened, we we're like, oh shit, well, I guess we're not going to transfer to Vegas anymore. And uh, we waited for about four months because she was still in the travel nursing program uh, to just get a job on the West Coast. We we're like, well, let's just go to Portland and then we can work our way down through San Francisco and you know, whatever. We'll just, we'll just get to the West Coast. None of that came open. So we you know, felt defeated. We went home for like four or five weeks, you know, put, got all our stuff in, in, in storage and everything because, I mean, we both are from... Home to upstate New yeah, York. Upstate, yeah, yeah, we went home for like a few weeks because we didn't know what to do. We are like, we're just done with Miami. Like, we got to figure something out. And we just went and kind of like chilled. And it was the summertime, which is a great time to be in upstate New York because it's beautiful and everyone's got a pool and it's just fun. And, uh, and then we got a call that she had a job offer and we literally packed up within four days and drove out here. To California. To California, yeah. Yeah, we drove out here within, uh, within four or five days of getting the call. And she had to report to work within 10 days of that call. Oh. So it was all of a sudden we were like, well, shit, just leave everything in storage. Yeah. Just get out of here. Take our, you know, pots, pans, whatever, you know, whatever immediate things that we need and get out here. And when I got out here, I met up with one of my old friends from high school who was working for Charlie Palmer in Costa Mesa. And he told me that because I was just like, let's just go. It's closer to Thomas. That's all yeah. I care about. It's yeah. closer to Thomas. Closer like to I want to get close to Thomas, please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it sounds really creepy, but <laughs> Thomas, if you're listening, no. you're like a mixture, yeah. mixture of like Dexter and the the main character of you. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a compliment. <laughs> yeah, everyone loves that. Sure. <laughs> uh, and uh, and you butcher. Yeah. <laughs> so we got there. We got to L.A. And, and that's where we were settled for her job. I touched base with my buddy, and he was like, "Oh, dude, guess what? Thomas Keller's opening a, uh, a Bouchon in Los Angeles, and I'm going to be a sous chef." Dude, I grabbed him by the shirt. I was like, "You've got to get me in there, Jamie, please!" And he's just like, "I can't do that." He's like, "You have to apply like everybody else." And he was like, "I pulled every string just to get my job." I was like, "You know what? Fuck you! I'll be there." <laughs> and I was like, "That was my immediate feeling, you know." And, and that's like that's the New York in me, right? It's like, all right, I, I accept that challenge. Let's do this. And I went, I, I interviewed, I demoed for them, everything. This is Bouchon Beverly Hills, this is right? Bouchon Beverly Hills, yeah, 2009. For the opening? For the opening. And I got the, head, I got the head butcher position. Let's go. And I didn't tell anybody anything. And I showed up on casting day or, you know, uh, the inaugural day, which they held at the Intercontinental in Los Angeles. I don't know if you guys have been to that hotel. Yeah, it's huge. It's the giant hotel Dude, that you can get ridiculous. lost in. There was yeah. 260 employees for opening. It was insane. We were in the at Bouchon? Yeah. It's insane. 260? Employees. For how many seats? It's 210 seats, but it's it's a much bigger monster and machine than that. Yeah, than no, just tell, 200 seats. Yeah, tell me about it I because mean, two, it's a bakery too, two right? Two-thirds of, of, of the building is kitchen. Only one-third is dining. And wow. so, I mean, this, the production behind it, unfortunately, it's no longer open. It closed, uh, I think it was last year. 
uh, yeah. after about eight years of, of service or nine years of service. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I remember I walked right up to Jamie. He had his chef coat on. with his, And with Jamie his, is the guy you knew from, from high, high school, school. Who we haven't talked in like 10 years. And all of a sudden we're both in oh, the same and industry. And he didn't know that you got the position? No. No, I walked right up to him, tapped him on the back. And I was like, how you doing, chef? <laughs> and he was like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm your butcher. <laughs> and what's interesting about that uh, uh, dynamic is that I held all the cards. Like the way the structure was is that line cooks and everybody didn't do anything but just cook. It was the extreme brigade system where you do your station and that's it. So there's What's Comis, that called again? The brigade. Uh, brigade. So yeah. in, in a French kitchen, that's very, very common where introductory employees, they'll do like, you know, peeling carrots, cutting them, blanching, you know, stock making, uh, you know, herb chopping, you know, citrus supreme, all real like basic but very fundamental and technical, you know, jobs to do. And, uh, and then it goes up as you go up, you know, in, in skill set where you could be, um, uh, Comey, uh, junior chef, the party party, uh, chef, the party, uh, demi sous chef, junior chef, and so on and so on. And each, each level, basically, you know, meat cook, uh, poissonier, uh, saucier, there's all these different positions and, and you're very laser focused like saucier, you're making all the sauces, you know, poissonier, you're doing all the fish cookery, you know, but the thing of the way the structure was that nobody touched their proteins. They only did everything pan ready. So all of that fell on me. Like I would bring in, you know, 120 pounds of short rib and I had to clean it, sear it, braise it, cool it, portion it, you know, strain the, strain the, the, the croissant, the liquid for it and have it in little containers for the, sh- the cooks to come over and just go, thanks chef. And they would grab a container of fully portioned, you know, proteins for service. And that's all they did. So what I immediately felt was like this huge responsibility was super stressful but what I really because no one can work their station without, without you. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. But then I realized I was like, whoa, this is a power play. This is a power position. And I was like, so how can I continue to build on that? And that's when I started to work with the sous chefs and started doing some of the sourcing with them and then working with the farmers. And the one thing, the, the biggest thing that I started learning working for Thomas was like sourcing, sourcing, sourcing. Like it doesn't matter. You could have good product or bad product. You know, like if it's a bad product, it's going to stay a bad product. If it's a good product, you could fuck it up and make it bad product. But if you start with the best product and you just care for it every step of the way, you can have some of the greatest product and you will taste that in your food. And you do. And you guys have had our charcuterie and things like that. Like you taste the clean meats. Like that's what's beautiful about the meats that we do in our butcher shop is that we take that care and attention to detail. And what we, 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 it's our mantra is finesse. You know, it's that, that delicate refinement, you know, in the workmanship that we do. And that's, and that translates through every step of the way, starting from the source. And that source is our ranchers. It's our farmers in the butcher shop. And, you know, doing that, you know, so we, we, we did everything there. I did all that. Um, I continued to grow and uh, become a sous chef. And then finally leaving as the executive, I did purchasing. So I was a purchasing manager. I led all the comies for a little while. And then I left as the executive sous chef ever after close to five years. And for me, that was the longest job I ever had. I was like, damn, like, I can't believe I stayed in one place. <laughs> My wife, because we were traveling and, and doing all that, which was great. But th- what I realized during that time there, um, I took a trip to Sicily with my wife. And because my father and I, you know, we would talk all the time about my cousin Sal in Sicily, um, really small town, Fontacelli, Fontina, in the northeast region of, of Sicily, just north of Catania. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Sicily at all. No, and, but I'm familiar. Everyone has a cousin Sal, right? Everyone's, <laughs> cousin Sal. everyone's got a cousin yeah, yeah, yeah. Sal, dude. And, and mine, is, mine is probably no different than the rest. Um, but Sal was the butcher and the farmer. 
So we went there and I went and I worked with him for about five weeks. I staged in a couple of restaurants around there. So it was like a working vacation. Uh, my wife and I tend to do that more often than we <laughs> it, becomes, like good, it becomes though. more. It's great. It's great. Um, and uh, what I learned there was like, wow, like what I experienced was like these people were coming into his butcher shop and just going like, hey, Sal, it's me and my wife tonight. You know, he's like, he said, Ashpeta, which means uh, one minute, you know, I'll be right back. And he would leave and you couldn't see him. He'd go back in the cooler. The carcasses are hanging and he cut off whatever. You know, sometimes he'd like tell me run across the street to the chicken coop and grab some eggs and we'd bread, you know, some Bolognese or something like that. But it was all done right there, right in that moment. You know, when that guest was asking for, for sustenance, they, they chose Sal to, to trust and give them direction as to what they were going to eat dinner, eat for dinner that night and feed their family. So they weren't, so they weren't coming in being like, I want ribeyes. There's no display case. You know the display case? Zero has? display Sorry, case. Sorry, there is a display case. You know what it has in it? His cheese and a couple of chickens and sausage. And that's it. And there's one kind of sausage, one kind of chicken, three kinds of cheese. And that's it. Because Sal makes it all. That's what you're eating, what Sal produces from Sal's animals. And that resonated with me in a way that was just unbelievable. Because when I returned back from our trip, I was like, man, I'm so inspired. I tried to incorporate some of those programs at Bouchon. And they're like, what are you fucking crazy? Like, we serve, you know, 85, 100 flat irons a night. Like, where are you going to find that from the farmer? And how are we going to use the rest of the cow and things like that? It wasn't that kind of shutdown. I don't yeah, want to paint yeah. a negative picture, but it was like, it doesn't work for that, that program. And that's something that doesn't work in a lot of restaurants because of how big they may be or what they want to serve or what their clientele is, you know, re requesting and things like that. Um, and that resonated with me really, really deeply because I would go to the farmer's market, you know, twice a week, even just for the restaurant for myself. And it's like, we got farmer Joe picking these apples and, and oranges and serving them to you right there at the farm stand here, cut this open, try this, eat it. You're like, Holy shit. Like this just came from, you know, uh, to you know, or wherever these farms are, you know, in so SoCal, it's like, you have this connection and then you go to the the farmers that have the meat and stuff, and they'd open up this dirty, beat-up cooler with pre-cut, frozen portion meat from who knows when. And they're not excited about selling it to you or anything. They're just like, it's almost like an inconvenience to them sometimes because they know that they're trying to charge such a, a high price point that they have to, you know, convince you that it's good enough and mm. it's frozen. So there's, you know, you're, you're losing some of the quality that they spend all their time in raising the animal. You know, so there's all these factors like, wow, we have this huge disconnect from our meats. Like, what the fuck? Like, Why? That, that to me just didn't seem right at all. Yeah. And we got pregnant with our first kid and I was like, I don't want to feed my kid proteins that I don't have control over. Mm. Like that to me was just like, no way, no way. And I was like, how can I recreate something like what Sal does? You know, how can I bring that to a community the way he does it? And obviously we've got way more people that live here than in Fontecali, Fontina, which sure. is only like 4,000 people, you know? So it, to me, it was like, okay, that's, that's what I want to do. That's my mission. My mission is to change the way we're thinking about food. We're thinking about meats specifically because there's a there's a lot of you know curtains behind you know what happens in, in the meat industry, and there's a lot of other way more experienced people that could speak to that way more clearly about like the dangers of it or the abundance of what happens with some stuff. And, and, and there's lots of other things that that happen in there. But for me, I wanted to create a, a platform that I could showcase how great it was. You know, I wanted to give people the opportunity to have a better source and it not be frozen and it not be pre-portioned. And actually they actually can decide what they want to engage with and what they want. You know, when we opened the shop, we had all, all one pricing. It was flat pricing. Every cut was the same price that lasted for like three weeks. <laughs> we were like, it's not going to work. Cause that's how Sal did it. It's all one huh. price. All of his beef was $5 a pound. Our beef could never be $5 a pound, right, right. <laughs> but, but it's one of those things where it's like he, he was feeding a community. And he's done it for four generations. That's what they did. 
And there was no question about it. If you went to the shop and he handed you liver, you had liver for dinner because that was the best piece of the meat to eat at that point. And then you might have shank and then you might have, you know, tenderloin or whatever as, as you go down the line. But you ate what needed to be eaten on the animal and the progression that it needed to be eaten as it was being butchered. And it was like, to me, that was such an amazing idea and concept. And that's how we started the shop was we were butchering everything to order where it was like, yeah, you want you want a brisket? Hang on, bro. I'm going to bring out the whole yeah. forecourt. I'd drop it right on the butcher block. I'd cut it right there. And I'd be like, I hand it to you and you got this 15 pound thing. I'd put it in people's hands. Like, how much do you want? And sometimes they'd be like, <laughs> and, 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 and part of that was kind of sales, salesmanship. Right there. It was like, uh, all? <laughs> you know, I was like, good choice. Cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it was. What's the biggest hurdle, though, here in America? Demand. Like, Demand. Yeah, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's no, demand. Yeah. It's demand, dude. People want what they want when they want it. And they, they're they not comfortable straying away from something, especially when there's, what, like two dozen different food publications, like physical magazines, and, and probably even more online that give you recipes. Yeah. And they tell you what cut. And they never tell you other options. You know, like you can use chuck and shank interchangeably. You can use flap and skirt interchangeably. Like you can use, like, so when you read a recipe... And you want to go, you know, create this recipe that you just read about, you're excited about, your friend for you, whatever. And like, you're coming in and looking for those cuts. If it's not available, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I can't make the recipe. What do I do? You know, yeah. it's like, no, there's, to- there's so many other options out there. Yeah. And you can still make that recipe. So it's also so education, demand. though, because a education lot of people, like time. myself, like, I, I don't want to fuck up a recipe. Yeah. You know what Especially I mean? Especially when you buy our meats. Yeah. And so, exactly. Especially yeah. if I'm paying, there's, there's I'm paying investment. in my head a higher investment point. So what's, what's crazy is... It, where does the education come from? Because what's cool is the way you guys have established your place. Yeah. And again, it's a microcosm. Like you guys totally. are doing a great thing here in Orange County um, and, and people travel. But it's it's definitely a microcosm where you guys have skilled, educated people at the helm, right? Absolutely. But like if I'm going to say my other grocery and there's a butcher in the back and I'm coming in, like you mentioned, I have this yeah. dope recipe for this one thing where I'm going to fry it and I'm going to do this. And it's all built to this piece of meat. I'm not a chef or educated in that capacity. I feel if I change this meat, I don't know, like, do I change the cooking time? I have no idea. Right. And I probably can't ask the person across the counter that that very same question. Thus, I get either what I came for or I bounce. Oh, yeah. Or, 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 you, or you do a different recipe. All of a sudden, you go from beef and now you're doing chicken because that's where you're comfortable. Yeah. Right. So that's another part, uh, another layer of what we want to provide to people. We want people to challenge what they're doing, what they're cooking in a really positive educational way. And that's, that's where we come in. That's why we like, you know, to, to circle back, like we spend 10 to 15 to 20 minutes with every single guest. Could you imagine if supermarkets did that? No, they, they couldn't. They, they, they couldn't they, keep they, up. No, exactly. So it's like, so we do that intentionally, you know, like when someone's buying something, we're asking like, Hey, how many people are you serving? You know, like, how are you going to cook it? You know, and like, and, and we walk through that with every single guest. So that way, if for whatever reason we don't have what they're looking for, we know how to navigate to what might be the next best solution for them. Yeah. Uh, Michael, can you talk about the animals that you have in the store currently and how you source them? Yeah. Like where they're from, why, why they're 100%. in your shop? Because I never purchased lamb before and I definitely didn't purchase a lamb neck before your (laughs) shop and it was because of that guidance I saw something intriguing to me and then was like oh I want to do that I'm a curious person but I don't know how 
but it was the combination. There was like, a th- there were two layers of education, right? There was like, well, this is the lamb neck. Also, this is what you can do with it. Because if I just bought the lamb neck, then I'm like going to Google mm-hmm. and that's it. Like I'm going to find what I'm going to find and that's what it's going to be. But tell me about how you source that lamb or how you source that chicken or how you source that cow or whatever and whatever yeah. else that you have in your shop. That, I mean, and, and to the to the point of some of those things that we put in the case, like we put some things in there intentionally as what we would call case talkers. Mm-hmm. So it's like when you see something like, well, French like a short rib in a different way and you're like, whoa, what is that? I'm like, it's a short rib. <laughs> <laughs> like in my mind, I'm like, it's a short rib, but I'm going to show you something really cool. So now when you're, you know, making this for date night, you know, you look like, you know, Gordon Ramsay. I mean, you look like Wolfgang. You know, all of a sudden you're like, <laughs> like, dude, yeah, no problem. Just some short rib by Bray, sweetheart. You know, no big deal. You know what I mean? Like, it, and, and we do some things like that in the shop intentionally, so that way it does create that conversation with with guests that come in, and especially our regulars. Our regulars are always begging us, like, what else you got? What's yeah. ba- what's back there that I haven't had yet? You know, and you know, which is one of our cool 2020 ideas uh, is like really mystery you know, meat. Was that mystery? <laughs> Not mystery meat. No, no, no. But but like around the world in 80 days, around mm. the cow in 80 steaks or whatever it might be. You know, it's like that's dope. to where like you can really like experience all there because they eat differently. They taste differently. They cook differently. Like there's so many different layers to so many different cuts. And if you all you eat, you know, when people are like, oh, I just like ribeye. I mostly eat just ribeye. I'm like, man, you are missing out on some of the most flavorful meat. I mean, like I think a lot of Asian cookery has really exposed texture in meat to everybody in like the past four or five years, especially with the shop. Like we have people come in and like, I want to recreate this recipe that I had at some restaurant and like I need beef shin, but I need it scored and like set. So it's like, and people are, people are desiring something new and exotic and, yeah. and, and you can't get that anywhere else. You can't get that at whole foods, you know? And I mean, maybe you can, I don't know, but uh, you can't get that as often as consistently as transparently as, as responsibly as you can with us. So that brings me, well, but but my question still stands. Like tell me, tell me about the meats in your case and how you source them. So the meats that we carry, uh, all have to fit a certain criteria, which is really important to us. And yeah, what's uh, that criteria? That criteria starts with responsibility. And responsibility to us doesn't mean just one buzzword. A lot of people use organic, local, grass-fed, all these things. Like, we care about all of that. We don't put any claims on anything. Our claim is responsible sourcing. We actually visit our farms two to at least one to two, sometimes when I'm lucky, three times a year, where I'm on site on the farms, literally checking to see if what they're saying is truth. You know, and that is a really big deal for me personally, because otherwise I just feel like a liar and, and we're not going to do that. And so we start working and we've changed farms over the years uh, for, for multiple reasons. But connectivity to the source is really important. Being able to go on site because some farms won't let you on, on on their on their land. And that to me is a red flag. Um, you know, we've changed you know farmers because of things like that over the years. And it's like I want to make sure that what you're saying is what you're saying, you know, and, and what you're doing is what you're doing. So. That's part of that responsible sourcing. So California, uh, uh, born, uh, um, raised and grazed, as we like to call, uh, and, and processed. So within California state lines is very, very important to us. 100% grass-fed and pastured uh, for our beef and our lamb is really, really important. Um, sustainable farming practices is really, really important for us. Um, and rotational grazing is really important because we don't want the land to be damaged also. Mm. Um, natural feed, uh, or if, if any, any supplementals and non-GMOs and things like that. So no hormones, no antibiotics. Like all of those guidelines that you see everybody else claiming is part of what we consider responsible. And it, the <coughs> biggest thing for us is sourcing California. 
you know, carbon footprint and, and just knowing that we can actually be in contact with what's happening to us directly within our state. And, uh, and then the processing is another big one is where the animal goes, where and how, and that what happens to it before it gets to us. We are literally the third set of hands with that animal um, on almost every single case. Well, when I'm at the grocery store and I'm buying a steak, what do you think the set of hands is on that? Anywhere between five, seven, or ten, <clears throat> depending if it's been processed or portioned and things like that. Uh, I mean, in, in the carbon footprint is probably even worse. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of farmers throughout the entire country that will raise their their cattle or their sheep or whatever uh, to a certain uh, size or weight or age, and then they'll ship it closer to where the slaughter or the processor is and then it'll finish locally down there and then that animal will then be redistributed wherever else in the country it's an extremely common practice um and and to me it's like why so this animal is probably traveling more than i'll ever do on a family vacation you know like that's that's crazy because that's not to us that's not responsible um now there's also reasons for some of that that are economically driven or just efficiency driven as well so there's, it's not that it's wrong. It's just that's not what we want to support. We want to support the most cleanest possible, <coughs> responsible way that fits our guidelines. And that's why we don't claim anything other than we're responsible sourcers. And, like, I could get every single one of our farmers on the phone probably right now. Like, the actual people that are out there in the ranges raising these animals. You know, which is, to me, like, that's what I want. Like, when I call you know, Lauren at Semple Creek. And I'm like, Hey man, he's like, hang on. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with these cows right now. I'll give you a call back. I'm like, fuck yeah. Call me whenever, call me whenever, you know? And, and I've been there, I've ranched with them and things like that. So it's like, so how do they us. get the animal to you then? So that's, that's part of, I think what's a really interesting dynamic for whole animal usage is it's not efficient. And you talk about space because that's where whole box beef came from, where it was like, you can fit five cows on a truck, but now right. you turn it into box beef where it's fully cut and not carcass. Now you can fit 25 cows on a truck. Mm. So that is super efficient for sales and distribution and things like that. For us, we want the whole carcass, right? So it literally goes from the farm to the processor, which are all local within, you know, some of them are within, uh, you know, 35 miles, which is very, very close. One farmer is within eight miles of the processor. Oh. So the stress that it doesn't, put on the animal is really really important any animal that's going to processing that's what's the processing out, is that the killing yes okay yeah, it's the harvest yeah. it's the slaughter it's the kill i was going to ask that a little bit down the line yeah like, have you ever like had to look the animal in the face yes have you have you i've also i'm also hunted so, okay so, so yeah like it's something that i'm comfortable with and honestly if you're going to be a meat eater like you don't have to do it but you have to understand like that's what's happening we're going to get to that later <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have further questions about that no. but um okay but, but yeah I so it goes, it goes from the ranch yeah. to the processor and then it's processed, and then it's no longer handled. Uh, USDA does it, so it's government-driven and regulated, which is a good thing. And uh, and then what happens is they usually split it uh, with what's called a Jarvis saw, and that splits it right down the middle for cows. We're talking, um, and then you know they they separate it into safe pieces, which is still hanging, and then it's lowered into um, a big combo bin, is what they're called, which is a huge cardboard box coated in plastic. Um, and then the next set of hands is ours. It then gets shipped down directly to us, and nobody else physically touches that animal uh, other than us. Next, so those processing plants are those this they're not the same plants that might handle some of the stuff that goes to say like a different grocery store, uh, it, or they, could it be? They, they totally could. I mean, processing houses, slaughter facilities, and stuff like that. Like they have to generate 
income by processing. Right. And if they only work with small farms that may only process two cows a week or 25 cows a week and they have more capabilities, they're going to take on more business. Right. But they do have to do um, inspections and they do have to do like sanitation, clean down and things like that when, when they do different farms and things like that. And all of those practices you're good with within those processing oh, yeah. plants. So that's oh, yeah. like, yeah, that I've, stuff I've been, doesn't change, I guess, in terms of volume. You're you're mainly kind of allocate, you're, you're kind of judging based on the farmer the processing plant is processing plant whether it was a properly raised animal or not they get yes they what what i'm gonna let the farmer make that decision because he's gonna see what happens with his animals every single time mm. you know like so they're, they're making that choice they're making that choice mm. we give them feedback every single time i have an animal show up to the uh to the shop i mean we inspect it we test it everything like we're looking for if there's like breaks or any kind of concerns like we contact them immediately because all that stuff happens during handling. It's stress and it could damage the animal and damage the proteins and then not give us the yield that we're looking for. So there's, you always have to be on the lookout for that. Like that's not going to be, uh, that's never not going to happen. It's, it's, you mentioned that the government, uh, is the government involved in the process is a good thing. Yeah. What is their role in this process and why is it a good thing? Food safety. That's that is the reason that they exist is food safety. Um, there's a lot of microorganisms and there's a lot of bacteria that happen during all this process. I mean, you're talking about inviscerating the animal, you're pulling out the insides of it. You know, what I mean, like there's there's contamination there. So it's it's about making sure they're there to make sure good practices are constantly executed. Um, some people have a different opinion that oh, you know, they get in the way and everything. And sure, they might get in the way, but they probably save a lot of lives too, you know, cause there's a lot of backyard butchery that happens and there, there's, there's places for that. And that, that works for people as well. I mean, when you talk about like halal and, uh, and kosher, like there's other things that has to happen to that animal when they're being processed. So, you know, what the government's doing is they're ensuring food safety. And that's, that's really, really important. I mean, we physically cannot retail anything that is not USDA inspected. So that's, it has to go through USDA. So we don't have a choice, you know, as, as consumers and as, as retailers, you have to have USDA processed food to retail. What was the, what was the first time that you had to slaughter an animal? Uh, when I shot it, <laughs> it was a, it's a glorious story. How old were uh, you? Uh, I was, I think I was like 21 or 22. Okay. I mean, I shot this squirrel right in the back hip with my 22 and a tree. No. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty lame. To be honest. It was glorious at all. No, run it, run it, run it. Uh, uh, yeah. No, I mean, my, my buddy and I, I mean, I wanted to hunt um, and he brought me out and we went and, you know, there's actually a squirrel season in upstate New York. Huh. Um, so we went out and we brought our little 22s and I, I got the guy in, in the in the back of the leg, which ruined probably like 45% of the meat, <laughs> which mm. is like where all the meat is. And, um, yeah, I had to, I had to take it and I had to, you know, remove the fur. I had to take the, the insides out and everything to me. I was like, this is, it's real. Like this is okay. And then I made probably the worst squirrel tacos I've ever had imaginable <laughs> because you don't saute squirrel, you braise it. <laughs> I come mm. to learn. Um, so, but, uh, but I had to eat it. I had to eat it and I still have the tail, uh, that I kept as a, as a you know souvenir. So it's, um, but other than that, I mean, I've done chickens. Uh, I haven't done any large game or anything like that. Okay. Um, I mean, we've done deer and things like that. I mean, like I haven't gone and like you know processed a cow in the field or anything like that. I'd I'd like to, but it it's a lot. It's a very big commitment, and you have to do it right because there's a lot of waste involved. I mean, we're talking the blood and sanitation and things like that. Um, so, and that's why processing facilities are really good because they do it in a really efficient fashion that doesn't contaminate things. How important is it? in your opinion for meat eating consumers 
to experience that on some level. I don't think they have to experience it. Honestly, like to make people watch animals get killed, knowing that they're going to eat it. Like, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's necessary. I think you need to understand that you are eating something that was alive and that's where the appreciation comes from for us and that desire to optimize every bit of it. You know, like I don't want to throw anything away. I mean, we've got our broth program is probably one of the things I am most proud of that we use all the bones and everything. And um, are you guys familiar with Max Love Project at all? No. It's, it's right in our backyard. I mean, it's a childhood cancer survivorship program that we provide the bone broth to families and Chalk Children's Hospital and the Max Love Project directly where it's like, I mean, these are, these are little kids that are diagnosed and, and fighting, you know, childhood cancer. And it's like, and bone broth, which as a cook and a chef, like I had no idea. I was like, dude, we're making stock. Like what is this bone broth kind of thing? And I had to be educated. And there's, there is a difference that I believe that there is a big difference between stock and broth. What is it? The difference between the two stock to me on a fundamental level is it's a foundation of something uh, that's going to be like sauce made, um, you know, braising liquid, soup bases, things like that. It's something you're going to use as an application. And it's not so much about collagen content and fat content. It's more about like clarity and flavor and things like that. And this is me coming from the, the French trained chef that I've, that I've, you know, am. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a builder for other things, you know, where broth is for consumption directly for nutritional integrity where you it's it's gut regeneration i mean your hair skin nails joints need this you know like my mother has ra so it's like we drink bone broth every single day and it relieves stress in her joints remind me what ra is uh, rheumatoid arthritis Mm -hmm. and uh which attacks you know all your muscles and joints and things like that so it's like there's a reason to drink bone broth and make bone broth with a high collagen high fat content high protein density like We've designed our broth program to support the Max Love Project, which, I mean, I mean, they're literally like, there are families around us that live locally that come into the shop with their children and like giving us hugs and they're just like, oh my God, your broth is the best. And it's like, brings you to your knees and tears. You know, you got like a five-year-old who's like literally alive fighting cancer and hugging you because you made soup. <laughs> you know, because because you, made, you made stock, you know? Yeah. So it's like, to me, that's a really, really big part of whole animal usage that is ignored. Um, not everybody has broth programs. I mean, there's tons of places out there that probably just discard everything all day long, bones, everything. Our, we have close to, in my opinion, a zero raw waste program where every single piece of that animal goes into something. We make dog skin treats. We make pork liver, or, or I'm sorry, beef liver treats, dog skin treats, our bone broth program. We make dog food. Like nothing goes to waste. I mean, in fact, we don't even have a garbage can for waste. We have a six pan. You guys are familiar with what a six pan is? No. no. It's uh, it's like it's six inches deep, and uh, and it's four by four inches uh, uh, around, and that's it. It holds about two pounds tops, and that is our waste container in our shop currently. And anything that goes in there has to go and find another home. It does not go into the into the garbage unless it's been contaminated or something like that. Um, which that's another thing that we focus on. We're like zero waste, zero waste, zero waste. You know, so and we're not zero waste. We're, in my opinion, close to zero raw waste. Um, like anything that comes out of the grinder, anything that smears that they like, maybe not be good for like burger or something like that. Like we can put that into bone broth. We can put that into dog food. Like there's there's a, a nutrient. Uh, there's a nutritional use for everything that comes off that animal. I think it's interesting when you were when Jeff asked 
is it important to see the process of, yeah. of an animal? Like, is it important to hunt? Like, so I don't, I've never hunted in my life, right. but it's been one of these like ongoing conversations we have at food beast is like, we're a food publication, we're a food publication. We can majority talks about me animal like animal based foods. Yeah. yeah. We're like, yo, yeah. we even have a painting upstairs that we commissioned our friend of it's me, Jeff, Mark and Rudy. And we're all standing around. You see our backs. I have a gun to my leg. Jet like Jeff is holding a baseball bat and we're all looking at a really cute pig in the <laughs> distance and the pig is looking back at us with these eyes of just confusion. Like, are we going to eat you? How did I miss we that? We, we hide it now. <laughs> <laughs> we don't hide it. It's just like not hanging. Um, and I think that was commissioned because of our like general understanding of food beasts and like we have to understand where this food is coming yeah. from. And we, we get off, we made a living off of just talking about food all the time. Yeah. Like we're all fatties in nature. Um, we and we were thinking about a content piece where we have to look our food in the eye where the silly one is I want to, I want to find a pig that I can domesticate mm-hmm. and then I have to set a date a year from now, six months. Again, I don't know anything about this right. where I have to kill this pig. Yeah. I'm going to take it around Disneyland a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to show it awesome treats. I'm going to take it to the Irvine spectrum, maybe yeah. to the beach. We have beautiful beaches here in California, but I have to set a date where I learn how to either put, I have to put the pig down. Right. I have to cook it. Yeah. I have to serve it to my friends that I named. Do you think that's healthy? Do you think <laughs> 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 wow. Talk about loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> pretty low. Pretty, pretty First of all, how ta- one, is it healthy? Two, uh, is this possible? And, and what, what do I need to think of? You're already talking about yeah. USDA regulations. Yeah. So Can I, first and foremost, I'll you're get my the, producer. I'll, I'll, on the, I'll, you're the I'll, executive producer. Yeah, on so this I'll get stuff. the easy ones out of the way. And uh, I think this is actually, I think it's pretty healthy. I actually think it's really healthy. I think you need to understand and respect where your food comes from. I don't care, honestly, if it's a, you know, almond on a tree that takes more water than we want to provide it to, or if it's an animal that you've become, you know, you know, you're, you're loving it and it's your best friend. I think as humans and as carnivores, you need to respect that. You need to have some kind of programming that you understand it and appreciate it. And that's, you know, to, to just to reiterate, it's like, that's what we focus on. That's what Electric City Butcher focuses on is appreciating all that hard work. I guarantee you every one of our farmers, they could tell you what their pigs are, who they are, which one has certain tendencies. Like they have an emotional attachment to every one of them. I'm certain of it. Because I've I've been there with them, you know, like a little bit like Lauren will be like, oh yeah, this guy he's been you know laying down, hanging out on the south side of the uh, of the pasture, and you know he likes to go up on in the afternoon when the sun's setting. It's like they know their animals and they are connected to them, yeah. so it's super healthy because you know you're taking care of it because you know you're going to use it to nourish somebody else, and that's what the whole system is. That's what the program is is working with these farmers working with you know you know the butchers that we have and providing it to consumers like yourself and knowing that every step of the way everything was done right to the best it was it could be so i can fulfill selfishly what i learned from thomas was the best ingredients always give you the best product so what animal can i domesticate uh i mean you can do a pig like can I, mean, I, I, can, I can bring you I can bring you to a pig farmer in Ontario this afternoon if you wanted to. Well, so can go pick out a pig. Yeah, so then <laughs> but then my next question in terms of responsibility like is my backyard enough for this pig? Like where what what do I need to think of? Well, I think you need I think you need to think about the size of the animal. Sure. Uh, the, you know what you can afford to feed the animal and for how long. 
um, because some pigs, I mean, my cousin, one of, one of my other cousins in Sicily feeds his, his, uh, pigs, all of his leftovers from his restaurants, you mm. know, and it's a pet pig and he knows someday he's going to have to put her down. He already plans on making sausage out of her. What's the life cycle. <laughs> you know? What's the life cycle I need to consider? Uh, it depends on the, the breed. It depends on, you know, I mean, what's I mean, you can process them as piglets. I mean, you ever heard of suckling pigs? Yeah, that's a, oh shoot. <laughs> See, I'm just saying, here. dude. No, no, I'm just sure. saying. Like, so a suck- suckling pigs are how old? Small. 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 Yeah. <laughs> they're like 14 so, to so 20 pounds, and they're only you know several weeks old. Mm. But they're delicious. Yeah, and they're cute. They are cute. And but all the animals, are, they're delicious when they're you know nine months old too. That's so. true. So they, they can ride. <laughs> but they're also like 200 pounds at that point. So. Yeah, no. or more. I mean, that's hanging weight. So um, that's what you have to kind of consider. You know, like I. To give you a, a point of reference, you probably don't want to be attached too long because it'll be harder. Yeah, know? and see, I also did not have pets growing up, so yeah. like I'm just giving you the groundwork. Or, or don't get a don't get a suckling, don't get a baby pig, don't get a piglet. Get one that's already a few months old, so you miss that cute phase. Oh man, and it'll be easier. Better content up. if it starts at the cute phase. Yeah, it's true. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, okay. you're gonna document it the whole way through. Yeah. Yeah. That's our yeah. plan. Starting with yeah. this conversation. I mean, so, I definitely have people we we can introduce you to, and I, I'd be more than happy to help you along the way on that. Um, and we're actually a custom exempt shop as well, so we're we're state approved and CDFA and custom exempt, so we can do private processing, uh, not not kill. Uh, but we can fabricate it for you however you want afterwards. And I know two people that do that are also custom exempt processors. So I want to ask so, more. So we have the resources, Eli. Got you. So the, the I pro- think I'm going to join in on this too yeah, because yeah, yeah. Uh, we're split custody. I think because well, why we're asking is because like there's only so many people we can have this conversation with one that can give us any sort of insight, but right. two like that are actually willing to understand like why this is an important conversation. Yeah. So Eli Eli and I understand both like there's an entertainment value on one side. That's like, have you ever watched someone go through the emotional spectrum of connecting to their food? I'm curious about that. Right. Mm. But the other side of it is, can we bridge the gap as one voice of many food voices? But can we bridge the gap of, hey, this is what is actually happening in all the stages of life before you just put your bacon in a skillet. I think that's important. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's, it's why we're kind of brainstorming yeah, with yeah, you yeah. because we, we know, we don't know a lot about the process, but right. we also think that Eli and I probably are a pretty good representative of the, of the average person who didn't come from a culinary background, right. who hasn't, who hasn't processed an animal in any fashion but is passionate about food. And I think there are a lot of us out there. Yeah. And, and so I think it's uh, I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm curious about. Like your thoughts. I, th- I think on, something on that it. would be really interesting to bring another, uh, like make it twofold. Not so, not so it's just the emotional attachment of the whole thing, but also to document, you know, what happens on a larger scale, because there's, there's still a level of emotional attachment. Like our farmer at Yanoseco up in Chico, I mean like, He's on the farm with those pigs. Like they allow them to birth them. He's making sure the piglets are okay. He's making sure that they, they live in, in, in areas uh, along, along the same age rate. So there's no disruption and they, there's no mm. harm or anything. So, I mean, he's literally caring for these pigs their whole life cycle as well, knowing that they're going to process. 
they are going, he watches them from gestation to, you know, birth all the way to, you know, uh, you know, you know, infancy to, to adolescence, you know, toddler to adolescence to teenage to adult, you know, and it'd be interesting to see the parallel in the emotions because it's not to discredit. And that's why it's so valuable to have the conversation with you and not just dicking around with our friends about this conversation. If you were to do that, I think it would be really interesting to be able to compare that on a more consumption level that is designed to be supportive and nurturing to the animal to make sure that it is well taken care of for its entire life. You know, maybe it doesn't get to go to Disneyland on the beach every every, yeah, you know, every yeah. weekend, but it's still being cared for the way the animal needs to be cared for to ensure that the product is good, safe, and healthy for people to eat. So I think, I think that would be a really nice parallel to that um, if, if that's something that you would be interested in we have we have our farmers we can set that up too are there any other animals i'm missing that could be lamb uh, oh my gosh so delicious <laughs> duck so actually cute. i was in seal beach a couple weeks ago yeah. guy has pet geese and he walks around seal beach with his geese on a leash sounds like a dr seuss book <laughs> a little bit right <laughs> you know? but uh it's it's pretty impressive and the goose actually obeys command which is wild like it's a show and the guy's down uh, seal beach like pretty often um, Will it fly away? They can't. It's on a leash. Like he literally no, no, walks I mean, it like, like a dog because he has I, to. It's an animal in the street. But no. where do I put it in? Like when it's kicking it at my house? Oh, I don't know. It could fly away, right? Yeah. You need a pen or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but that's sad. I don't want. The, I don't want to do. What that do you mean either. that's sad? Like, okay, get get no, ready. No, get, yeah. get ready for this content <laughs> production, man. Like, we're like, no, no, I'm we're down. on the we're on the surface yeah. we're on the surface level of sad. Yeah. We're, workshop, we're, we're workshopping this. Yeah. Like, that's I mean, what I'm just saying. Like, I want to. I'm I'm trying to treat my house as like the farm, if that's one of the places. I right. Mean, you could give so it a room. I've worked with farmers who actually indoors. bring. Yeah, who actually bring. You can tell I've never had a pet. Indoors. It's allowed. <laughs> who, who cleans after this? <laughs> You'll have to train it to poop in the potty there. Oh my gosh! I get a doggy door for the duck. You could. It'll just fly away. Be nice. But then, like maybe, okay, this is this is this is. We got there. we got something to build on for sure. Yeah. Uh, Mike, because your uh, because your butcher shop is whole animal butcher. I feel like it puts you on a platform and potentially also is a target um, in the in the sense of like uh, yeah. food beast. Um, when we did a foie gras eating competition, like we got swarmed by PETA. And oh, so yeah. we're not, I mean, we also have tons, literally dozens of vegan conversations and we, we don't take a specific stance. We're covering everything, especially with the meat alternative movement that's like happening. We've been a big voice just documenting what's going on. Right. Do you feel like it's a little bit unfair though, that like your single small business butcher shop can get targeted when the major grocery store doing like a hundred X, the amount of pounds doesn't necessarily get the same level of attention from anyone from an animal community. Like, can you describe like what you've experienced and like, if you've been a target when you say, if we've been a target, we've been a target multiple times. Um, and quite frankly, it's like, probably one of the most disturbing things I've ever personally experienced where I had to leave because I, what happened? I, I, I couldn't, I almost, I couldn't control my emotion because I wanted to just go out there and be like, what is wrong with you? Like the whole purpose of our butcher shop is to provide people an alternative to better meats. Like that is the sole purpose. And you're affecting, you know, at that time it was like seven employees, you know, that we had and we're like, you're affecting seven people's livelihood, seven, <coughs> like who live here, who pay local taxes and all this other stuff. Like, 
we are people that are working and living in this community trying to provide a better option than the commoditized product that's out there. Why would you pick us? Why would you come here? Like they covered our sidewalk. I mean, to me, it was like such a personal attack. Because You're an easy target. Exactly. Well, also because where we're located, you know, we're not in a private parking lot or anything like that because all of that stuff, they can't go onto. Like they can't go to like They can't Vons. trespass. Exactly. They can only go to the sidewalk at Vaughn's, you know, which is so far away from the building where us, they could be on the sidewalk, can't block it, but they could be on the sidewalk and as our guests are coming in, they could be like, oh, what's wrong? You know, they, they can sit there and, and do what they do. Um, I fully support people who are protesting things that they believe in um, for a better change in something that, you know, needs to be changed. I, I fully support all of that and 100%. Um, but the way you go about it and who you you know protest against, I think you should be more educated on and you should try to make a change on a, on a higher level than such a small local level that will have zero to, you know, little to zero impact uh, other than hurting people individually. Like that's what they were going to hurt. They were going to hurt us individually as individuals, not the meat business. Not the meat chain. No. Not, no. not boxed me. No, what they were protesting, I mean, at one point, I mean, they literally had slander on, on they're like, Electric City Butcher murders animals, which is completely not what we do. You know, it was like, that's how, I mean, they were very ignorant. I mean, we had several of them come into our shop and sat there and tried to talk to us, and the guy had his phone, like, oh, you could tell he was he was recording and things like that, and I'm like, sir, and, and I tried to tra- transition the, the conversation, I'm like, sir, how can I help you? You know, you're looking to purchase anything today? No, I just want to know what kind of practices you have, and why you think it's okay to kill animals and, and, and eat them and things like that. It was like, it was, it was such an, an attack on everything that we try to do as an individual small business and in individuals like everyone in my shop, like we all believe in trying to make a difference, a positive impact and offering something to the community, to others that they can't get on, on other levels because you know either the price is too high or it's not available or many other reasons like we're, we're that alternative we're trying to provide that alternative and we're not stuffing it down anybody's throat we're not protesting we're not saying vegan like I contemplated carrying the Beyond Burger you know in the shop like I'm like why shouldn't we you know try to offer something for everybody because we have a lot of vegans that actually come into the shop and buy meat and cook it at home for their families like you know mothers or fathers who are vegan but their kids are their husband or wife isn't so it's like, why can't we, you know, try to create kind of some kind of like synergy between the two to offer people, you know, their alternative while they're here. Right? I guess if Beyond falls in line with the the initial rubric that you had for what goes in your store, right? Like trying, in, in, you know, yeah. I mean, we didn't California, we didn't, yeah, yeah. We we didn't follow, we didn't we didn't do it for other reasons, but uh, it, it was really disturbing for me personally, like feeling attacked because this is my life. You know, it's like it, it felt as bad as like when my wife went to Vons and bought steak. And I'm like, it's like, yeah. you're cheating on me. Like my, my <laughs> life work is to provide better meats for people, including us, you know? And it's like, we well, didn't bring any home. I'm sorry. I forgot. Let's eat fish tonight. <laughs> let's, let's eat vegetables tonight. Like it's okay. You know, kind of thing. So it's like, you know, for me, it was very personal because it was everything that I have sacrificed in my career to, to launch this. Um, and what it has taken to launch this and build this and then how it could come crumbling down from people like that that could affect our guests if we don't manage it properly or they just, you know, any kind of physical concerns. Like there was a point where we actually, in one instance, we didn't feel safe going to the parking lot. We, we, we there was a mob outside the shop. It was two of our junior uh, employees um, who, you know, expressed concern walking to their cars. 
because it was at nighttime. It was it was a nighttime protest, like because it was like the winter time, so it was like you know four o'clock to like six o'clock, and they staged it at certain times. And uh, you know we had we called the cops to have them escort our employees to their cars in the parking lot. It's terrifying because like, when they use people, they forget they're like they're using these words like murder, and they're on our Instagram page. Yeah. Like they use those words, and to them it's just words. We're like, well, you you because they they have this genuine deep down belief that yeah. it's murder towards animals, but like. Now they're conveying that to other humans. And so they're, I don't, I, I, I feel for your team. Like yeah. walking at night after you just had this People like verbose outside our windows, words. like holding signs up, like, you know, irritate, you know, trying to agitate us to yeah. get us to do things. Like, yeah. you know, it was, it was really wild. Cause it's like one of those things where it's like, you feel like, okay, well this is your mission. Well, okay. Did you drive a car to this protest or, you know, how did you get here? Because there's somebody protesting cars, you know? Yeah. So like what makes your protest? that important that you're going to disrupt individuals like actual people's livelihood and lives not the machine you're trying to break right you know like you should refocus what your intentions are and your efforts and go to them like go petition at uh, you know costco's or or, or a processing plant you know like go to a processing plant and make, and make this dance you know but because of who we are, because of our brand acknowledgement, because of our location, like we were a very easy target, you know, like it immediately, you know, there was a lot of people that, uh, that, you know, noticed what was happening and they made an impact and they picked certain times of the day, like Saturday afternoon was one, you know, we tried to be really nice too. Like we brought them water and stuff like that. Cause it was super hot. One of them, like we weren't being assholes at all. Like we were like, literally like here, like we want, you know, you guys are gonna be out here cause they didn't have any water. No one had coolers or anything. It was so hot. out. It was like 90 something degrees in the middle of the summer. We're like, Okay, guys. Like, well, let's let's bring them some water. They refused it. They started yelling at us because it was water and uh, plastic bottles, and we don't care about oh the ocean now gosh. either, and everything. And I was like, what What is Nerds. your intention here? You yeah. know, and, and and I support people, you know, expressing their you know their missions and things like that. But for us, it was yeah, it was pretty disturbing. You know, is it, uh, it was it was a real tough moment for myself uh, because of our whole mission. You yeah. know, it's like to have somebody like really shit on you like that in a way where you couldn't do anything. You know, like I couldn't physically go do anything. Like we had the cops there and stuff like that because they were just making sure like, well, you can't do anything unless they're actually, you know, damaging your property, obstructing um, Customer. uh, customers. And, like you, you can't do anything, you know. So it was really hard to sit there and bite your tongue, you know, and just be like, okay, I hope they go away. And they did, you know, and maybe they won't after this and they'll hear it again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was very interesting um, to, uh, to experience Deal that. Through. Yeah. Something Eli and I that... I- that we've experienced food beast being like, I still consider ourselves like a small business and we definitely were in the early years is like what people who aren't small business owners have never understood. At least when I've talked with them is how fragile it is at any given point at any time for thousands of reasons. Um, in the sense that like, at least with food beast, like, when you do content, there's tons of liability about like the content you produce and you distribute and if you have rights to it and whatever. And then there's the the budgets and like the clients and the whatever. And at, at any one point, if there's a domino like cash flow, right? If that domino hits, then there's just a fragility about it that it's hard to explain. Does the, the when, when PETA or animal activists, like when they're sitting out front of your shop and hurting the shop and the employees potentially livelihood does it hurt a little bit more because i don't know when that happened but 
I'm imagining like a small business, a butcher shop that has has to educate consumers on what they're purchasing to a higher degree who needs a certain staff member to fulfill that mission and be educated on that mission. Like, I don't know what the economics are like, but I could imagine it being hard. And so I, I'm curious about like, what have you experienced from as being a small business owner trying to essentially change um, a major way in which people consume meat? So to, uh, you know, to mention like, like even that, that impact from, from the protests and stuff like that, like we were very fortunate where we're located. I mean, Orange County has been very supportive to the idea of our butcher shop and our philosophy and, and what we stand for. So honestly, like on those days, like our guests came running, our guests came running to the shop, buying as much as they could. That's like, you know, it, oh dude, it was, it was phenomenal. And just feeling that love, like really, you know, personally helped me. Cause I was like, okay it's not the end, you know, like something horrible is not going to happen. Um, and, uh, and because of the education that we provide to our guests, because of that quality, because of that responsible sourcing, people who really care actually really know and, and they care to know, and that's what they focus on. And the economics of, of running the business of how, of what we run, we run a huge risk with bringing in whole animals, right? Because with a whole animal, like on average, like 30% of that animal is not meat on average, if not more sometimes. So that's waste, uh, you know, bones, things like that. And by waste, I mean like might go, might go into the dog food or something like that, like, or the bone broth program and things. And then the labor that's involved in that, you know, which is, you know, a, a beautiful thing. I mean, it's artistic. It's, it's a craft. I just came from, um, cure camp, uh, that Mike Sullivan and, and Brian Butler put on for the past two days up in, up in LA. And it's like this craft of fermentation, you know what I mean? That's been, it's centuries old, you know, it's like, there's an investment in this is my point is no matter how you look at it, you're investing in a product and an experience. And for us, it's probably equal uh, product and experience. Uh, and, and what I mean by experience, not, not skill set, but experience for the person who's purchasing the product where most butcher shops and most, you know, retailers and stuff like that, it's probably less experience and more, uh, product investment, which is, which is phenomenal. That's why I see those ribeyes stacked high as hell, because if you only sell one or two ribeyes in that case, you're like, Hmm, do I really want the ribeye? Where's the rest? But it's like, there's a lot. It's like, Ooh, I got choices. You know, it's kind of how we're, you know, engineered now. Um, but it, there's definitely, there's an investment uh, on, on staff members. There's an investment, you know, monetarily with the farmers. Uh, and there is an investment just in the programming um, that sometimes you can't quantify it all uh, because it changes from animal to animal, you know, or from request to request. So, you know, we talked about it in the beginning, like we tried to like do like one flat pricing. You know, it's like, well, and we realized nobody wanted pork shank or pork feet. So, you know, yeah. like if no one's buying that and it's constantly not being sold at that price as the other things are, like we need to adjust with that. Um, so that commitment to what we want to provide, uh, kind of supersedes any other, you know, uh, concern or, 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 or economical, uh, stretch that we may have. And, and not that we don't identify those things or maybe alarmed when, you know, you know, financially we need to make other decisions, but the focus is that we stay on mission and that mission is about providing people a better product that we believe in is the best responsibly sourced and for a, a, a really good quality product or for a good quality price. Like our pricing is not astronomical compared to other places. If you go to Whole Foods, Gelson's, Bristol, I mean, if you go online direct to any farms and stuff like that, like we're not, you know, tens and tens of dollars, you know, above anybody. We're very competitive. 
And we're competitive for a reason because we want people to have this meat. We want people to change the way we're eating. If you only ate Mariposa and Stemple Creek beef moving forward for the rest of your life, I guarantee you your body will thank you. You know, and it is natural, sustainably raised grass-fed beef that your body will break down and, pro- and process much better than any of the other grain-fed products that you have in, in your body. Like, it's just, it's just what we do. You know, our bodies digest cleaner food easier. You know, it's... Uh, and always, do you have recommendations for people who may not be within earshot of Electric City Butcher, but they're like looking to do make better choices like at the supermarket butcher? Like what can what can I look for yeah. if like a oh, dude, I like I need meat somewhat soon. Yeah. Um, or you you might just live in an area that's a little bit more deserty and you might not have access to like is there better things to look for at the store? Right. Like, what do you recommend for people listening right now that may not, they may not be able to come to Electric City Butcher? First and foremost, if you live within 16 mile radius of the shop, you go to Mercado.com, <laughs> search Electric City Butcher, and we deliver <laughs> within no. 16 miles. So that part we've got solved for you. <laughs> Wait, now, what's the website? Uh, Mercado.com. Okay, cool. Uh, and it's, uh, you just search, it's actually a specialty online grocer that they, um, that they have our entire inventory on and you can plug and play. You can choose to pick up or deliver, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, but outside of that, like think about how close you are to the source. That to me is probably the number one thing. Um, there's online companies out there that ship across the country. That stuff is processed 3000 miles away. Bottom line is that product has to come 3000 miles to you. That's mm-hmm. the first step, <laughs> you know, like before you go in anywhere else. Like, so connectivity to the product, uh, location to the product, I think is really, really important because the closer you are to your product, the fresher it's going to be and the better quality that it's, that, it, that it's going to be. There's less stress on the animal. There's less uh, packaging. There's less handling. So nutrient density is going to be better. There's there's a lot of, lot of factors that are going to be way more beneficial the closer you are to the source. Mm. So that, I would say, is the first thing. Uh, the second thing uh, would be uh, shelf life. You know, like how old is it? You know, has it been previously frozen? Um, those are the other, those are the two other attributes because as it's breaking down, um, you do lose nutrition. Um, you know, your your water your water activity is going down, so you're losing some of that nutritional density. You're probably getting a lot better flavor. Dry aging, for example, is a phenomenal product, but you do lose some of the value, the original value that was in that cut before you dry aged it, right? Uh, and then freezing. Uh, if you can avoid anything that's frozen, I think it's a really good thing too. Uh, that does damage the quality of the protein in the cells. Uh, and well, a lot of times when people thaw frozen meat, you there's you know there's pooled red liquid, right? That's blood. Nobody added liquid to the bag when they froze it. So mm. that's crystallization. What happens in the proteins when it thaws? That moisture leaches out, and a lot of times people throw that out, right? You'll put down the drain or get rid of it because you're like, oh, what am I gonna do with that blood? That was in that meat. You would have eaten that originally had it not been frozen. So put it in your bone broth. I mean, drink it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not it's not gonna hurt you any. You know, like mm. you cook it, put it in the pan when you're when you're stewing something or whatever. Like, um, so if you can avoid frozen, you don't have to worry about that. You'll get a better nutritional density. Uh, and if the fresher it is, uh, the better quality it's gonna. So be. those are some questions you could ask at your whatever you totally your local, local butcher you is. You could totally ask. Absolutely, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to provide that information. Like. Oh, when did you package this? Like, should first of all, there should be a pack on date. That's mm. the number one thing. Um, but they should know. They should be able to tell you exactly when everything came in. Everything is fully marked. And if you're buying box beef or not box beef or anything like, there's there's tons of information on there. If people want to learn more about butchering from you, how would they do that? 
Uh, they go to our, well, we have a couple different programs, actually. We work with some culinary schools where we do on-site education. Uh, we do um, uh, on, we do classes uh, almost every week right now. Like if you go onto our website under classes or eventbrite.com, I mean, like, we do sausage making, butch, uh, chicken butchery, um, lamb, pork. We're doing beef demos. I mean, I, I think I've got classes lined up from now until the end of March or end of April almost. Um, and we do those in more intimate settings too, to where it's like no more than six to eight people. And they're also hands-on. So you can actually get the saw in your hand and know what that feels like cutting through a shank or something like that. And then you're using the knife and cutting like pieces of pork belly. Um, and what's cool is you go home with all that. So you Mm -hmm. go home with, you know, go home with a bunch of meat, you go, we, you know, we eat, we drink, we butcher, you go home with a bunch of stuff. And I mean, it's, it's a great time. Dude, I love doing the classes. I mean, and for me, that's the extension that's important to me is educating people. And then those people become guests of the shop, which is a beautiful thing is they'll come in and be like, Oh yeah. Hey, Lennon, how are you, man? Like, Hey Mike, Hey Asher. It's like, I, I, you know, we we did the class last week. Remember? And it's like, man, I cooked that, that, uh, that shank, which they probably would have never purchased, but because they cut that shank in the class and took it home, they now have an attachment to it. Yeah. And they're going to take care of it and they're going to cook it and they're going to eat it. And now it's resonating with them. So like for me, the class is a beautiful extension of our, of our craftsmanship and, and what we're trying to do. Man, I'm so hyped to cut some meat. Right <laughs> Probably do that before I do the pig thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd say that's a good next. Yeah, you definitely should. <laughs> one of our classes. We'll set you up, I dude. We, we got, we got, we got tons of classes, yeah, but also we do private stuff too. Like, uh, I'll, I'll accept private stages and, and apprenticeships and things like that. Um, that I'll work with people directly. Um, or we can do like, you know, afternoon sessions or something where it's like, you just want to see breaking down and we'll just, we'll, you know, it'll be in a, in a time of the day or, or part of the shop where it doesn't disrupt anything else. And, you know, mm-hmm. we do personal education as well. Guys, what's your website? Cause I just, I've, it's electric city, electric city butcher.com. Dude, fantastic oh. site guys. There's actually like a lot of dope literature that I was reading before this. Oh, um, so go, go check that out. It's curious. It'll make you think a little bit more about your beef too and, and all your meats actually. So. And where can people find you? Uh, is there an Instagram yeah, for the Electric shop? City Butcher uh, is the Instagram um, and uh, and my, my own is uh, Michael F. Puglisi. And um, I mean, the biggest thing that we are always trying to get people to get exposed to is connectivity to the farms mm-hmm. um, and, and really appreciating where the product is coming from. Because once you build that personal value, you know, like you, you really start to connect the dots and even if you can't make that, that time to come to the shop or those purchases, you know, every week, it's, it's, it's a seed that's planted where it's like, I know there's options out there to do better for myself and my family. And that's what our foundation is. Our foundation is all about providing a better platform or, or a great platform for a better product. And that's, that's really important to us. And that's why we do all the education. That's why we spend the time with the guests. That's why we do all of our value add in house. Like we're making all of our own sausages, pâtés, you know, something like we're, we're known for our Copa di Testa, which is a, an Italian style head cheese where we debone the entire pig head. We remove all the glands, we cure it, we roll it back up, we cook it nice and slow and shave it really thin. Like Damn. it's a really unique product. It's a know? live stream, Eli. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, it's like, yeah, I mean, I mean, and we do, we do everything with no binders, no fillers, no additives, preservatives. I mean, we, we, we do use, you know, some, you know, uh, very, you know, good preservatives for botulism and things like that. You have to, but the, the point is like, there's no, if you look on the back of our ingredients, it's like pork, spices, salt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There's everything you know and can enunciate. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's no hidden there's no hidden uh, elements in our product, and we're fully exposed. I mean, you can see into our walk-in yeah, from really across cool the space, street. Yeah. From across the street, you can see into our. We're all windows. I mean, we can't hide anything. We don't want to hide anything. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can see the spices we use. I mean, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty fun place to 
really, you know, bring that craft and the life of butchery in, in forefront to people to where it's actually accessible and they can actually feel comfortable. It is the one thing we do in the past. We used to get people that they come in and be like, do you guys sell ground beef? You know, cause we would never put it in the case. It was always, if you want ground beef, we'll grind it to order. Yeah. And what are you making? I want to know what you're making before I even give you ground beef. Because if you're making, you know, burgers versus meatballs, you might want a different grind. Yeah. So I don't want you to just have a universal ground. I want to give you the best thing that you can have for what you're doing. And that's where more of that interaction comes in. It took a long time for us to even put a cut steak in the case. Like we didn't have pre-cut steaks, uh, ground beef or hamburgers in our display case until about 18 months ago. And we're celebrating five years next month. Damn. <laughs> it was like it's crazy <laughs> to think about from from just everything that people know about a butcher shop, right? Yeah. 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 It, it was, we want you to have the experience again, so you feel that connection to the product. When you see us break down a chuck roast or, or trimming that chuck roast and creating that trim, and then you see us go into the walk-in and we see us grind it, which is also everything's temperature controlled. You know, if you go, if you come to the butcher shop, make sure you have long sleeves on, right? It's only like yeah. 62 degrees in there. We That's on purpose. What were you going to tell me about that one burger I asked you to make? <laughs> so guys, a few years back, I, I needed a burger and I had this dumb idea where I knew Michael had like every animal that I might not yeah. be top of mind for me and I wanted to put it all into a couple burger patties and I was like yo Mike what you got and then he literally pulled everything off what was in that burger remind me I remember watching the video duck confit heart uh, short rib brisket tenderloin so good pork belly uh, I mean, dude, there was, it was, there was, there was a ton. It was, it was beautiful. Honestly, <laughs> it was really good. It was so good. Uh, it was two things. It was, it was, it was pretty great. Obviously the, the power of food beast, which was awesome. I mean, the reach that you guys have, cause I was taking my daughter to dance uh-huh. and I sat down and I'm just minding my business, watching her dance. And these two dads and this mom, I hear him talking behind me and I'm like, what are they talking about? And I thought I heard food beast or something. I'm like, okay, okay, whatever. I'm watching my kid. And then one guy taps me on the shoulder and goes, Hey, aren't you the guy from that video? And I'm like, <laughs> like, what are you, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he was like, food beast, right? Food beast, the, the whole animal kingdom burger. He's like, didn't you do? I'm like, Oh God. <laughs> like, yeah. Sorry. Now you're known for that. Yeah. But, but, and it was like, I'm at Dan, they're, they're you know, doing ballet. And like, we're over here talking. <laughs> it, was like, it was like the most, uh, it was, it, it was the most exciting moment, uh, in the early stages of, of the butcher shop where it was like that reach is my point where it was like, wow. I'm like, the parents that I'm, you know, in my own community are are looking at these things. They're looking at the influencers like yourself. They're looking at trends. They're looking at all of these things that they're exposed to. And we do have a direct impact to our community. Yeah. Like that's the coolest thing. And that's what like for me it was like this epiphany. I was like, holy shit, like that was super cool. I don't care that I got, you know, uh, recognized, but the fact that they were paying attention to something yeah. that could connect them to something so much bigger and, and, and plant that seed of making that change in their life. And it was like, it was really wild, man. And I actually started selling them some meat too. I'm <laughs> so glad. That was pretty cool. I'm glad we had this conversation because it makes me appreciate what you guys do more. Cause yeah. I'll be honest with you. Like whenever we did that, like three or four years yeah, ago, like, ago. I, I just wanted to put every animal in a burger. Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't have any other context yeah. other than like, this would be funny and cool. And then it, t- I didn't know how it would taste. Right. But it tasted so. I don't know what you guys did in the Dude, grind. We didn't, it was didn't just, fuck up. We did good products. Yeah, <laughs> took care of them the whole way through, man. And and I then, remember. I was next like, time, let me cook it though, not Philly. No, I'm I know. Yeah. <laughs> but what's funny is you cared so much that we were cooking it in our kitchen, which is a few steps away right. from you guys. But you ran out of your shop <laughs> and wanted to make sure, like, 
yo, I want to see how this kid's cooking. Because <laughs> like, if he fucks, that's so me. If he fucks up my, like you, you were like you were like a hawk. That like that like French background. Of yes. Yeah, yeah. Was like, oui, oui, oui. <laughs> <laughs> really? that is that's um, so me. And that's and that I think is another part of the beauty of the shop where it's like we're so embedded. I mean, like all of our team members go to the farms. Like we bring our team members to the farms to get them to experience it too. Because again, we we're that connection. We're trying to make that change. Look, you can go buy your meat anywhere. I mean, you can buy it online. You can buy it from other countries. You can buy all your stuff. I mean, we don't have to leave our homes anymore, right? Yeah. But you do have to make a better effort or more effort to have better quality products for yourself and your family. And if you don't eat like that all the time, that's fine. But if you eat like that more often, you will feel the benefits. I guarantee you, you will feel the benefits of eating cleaner foods in general. I mean, like, honestly, I eat vegetarian twice a week. and I own a butcher shop. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I eat fish once a week at least, and I eat vegetarian at least twice a week. And it's like, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to get people to eat more meat. I mean, yeah, sure. I want people to come into the shop and buy more meat so we can help a community eat better all the time. But I don't want you to eat more meat in general. I want you to eat better meat. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's the whole foundation of the butcher shop and why, why we, why we do what we do. That's respect guys. Go Google animal kingdom burger food beast <laughs> and enjoy that video. That's me. That's Mike. That's Jeff. That's and a it. there's time. a lot of people in food beast in that video. Go enjoy it. Uh, if you're in orange County, Southern California, swing by electric city butcher, follow them on Instagram, go to electriccitybutcher.com. This has been Michael, Eli, and Jeff. Yes, sir. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you guys next week. Bye, Bye guys. Ciao.